Live from Red Bull Studios, New York. I'm in love with my life. Hey, this is Mary H.K. Choi, and you're listening to Hey, Cool Job, a podcast about jobs. My guest today is Judd Nickmayer, writer, producer, and the brand spanking new program director at Kinfolk. She's got a few really cool jobs, and we're going to talk all about them. I'm in love with my life. Damn, I feel so important. What an intro. It's true. Um, so let's talk about your newest appointment first, considering you're literally coming back from your first meeting. Dun, 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 dun. Um, what does a program director do and what is a kinfolk? Because <laughs> it's not that twee white guy magazine that it exists is not, that which I yeah. saw at Whole Foods the other day. It's and I was like, harrowing. Oh, um, so Kinfolk is a spot in Brooklyn. It is a venue. It is several venues, actually. Worldwide, um, no? Worldwide, yeah. So basically they started as a bike studio. Um, they brought, that was in Japan, they brought a location here and they turned that into a cafe, bar situation. And then they also opened a store because they now also do clothing and other lifestyle stuff. And then they opened an insane wooden dome. Yeah. Geodesic dome. (laughs) On the other side. Basically they've been eating up their block as much as possible. Um, So that's what Kinfolk is. It is a venue, a space, a lifestyle, a brand, all that. And the program director is basically the face of the brand. I do all of the booking. Um, Basically, anything that goes down in the space goes through me, and I am in charge of building the space and building the culture around the space and the social atmosphere around the space so that people want to come there. That's awesome. I think it's particularly wonderful. I mean, not that Felipe, who is leaving that particular spot, is Miss you, Flip. I know. He's amazing. He's gone to L.A. to work with Eddie Wong, who's also been on this podcast. Um, but yeah, I actually think it's kind of dope and pointedly exciting that a woman is doing this just because not just because of like safe spaces and this and the other, but just to dictate a certain vibe. I think that New York nightlife does require more of that. And I, and not that anything can entice me outdoors after a certain time of night, cause I'm old <laughs> and washed, but I think that's really exciting. What, what do you want to accomplish there? Um, I think for me, yeah, it's like, I couldn't really believe that I got the job. Wait, why? <laughs> well, because I'm so used to, I, well, cause I'm a woman, sense. so I'm so used to being passed over. All oh, right. <laughs> a woman I'm, of color happens like, all the time. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I like, I probably interview for not interview. I probably get called out for jobs all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm so used to it being, especially when it's jobs of people who really know me, yeah. which you would think would not happen that way. I find that, uh. I get passed over a lot. So I was shocked to get the job. Um, What type of person do you get passed over for? Basically like any male that is just about three years under experience. (laughs) Sometimes people have been like, and that's, this is not shade. No, Uh, no, this is blatant. Sometimes people have literally been my intern. (laughs) Oh, wow. That's fun. Which like, that's the way the world works. Yeah, but, totally. It's, it's, uh, um, life yeah. is a meritocracy and they get the pleasure of probably making 15% more than you ever would have had you also occupied true. that space. Yeah. Yay. Hey, cool job, everyone. <laughs> yeah. I either get passed over because somebody else gets it or I say, this is what I'm worth. And they're like, 
Oh, right. Because they think that they can get you in a bargain basement just like on some fam shit. Yeah, pretty much. Hashtag let's build fam. And they're like, yeah, like hashtag like you, you lady have less bills or something. Yeah, yeah. And so. They're like, are tampons expensive? I don't yeah, think I don't. so. Let's, let's keep it moving. The wonderful thing about you being the program director at Kinfolk is because you're a woman and a woman of color and you have exceptional taste. But it's also that like. It's an obvious choice. I think that if mm-hmm. you wanted it, and I heard through the grapevine that somehow this wasn't availing itself to you, I would have been outraged. I mean, I think for the entire time Kinfolk has been alive, I've been like, oh my God, I should book this place to anyone that could listen. But I also loved uh, Felipe and Jeremiah and all the people that were doing it. And I was like, they're killing it. And um, I, yeah, I just, when I got this gig, you know, I'd just gotten back from tour and it pretty, pretty much happened like the day I got back to New York and it was like a complete lifestyle change because I've been like not in New York all this time. And now I, I have a job where I have to be permanent, not only permanent, but go out to the same place every night. So <laughs> I was excited, but I don't know. I think um, Felipe said this to me and I will say this. I This was really heartwarming. He said this to me. He said, I thought of you because I wanted to put a black woman in power and it's and it's high time that a black woman have some power in nightlife in this city. And he I was really moved by that because I I think he knows that that is what me, meant the most to me. And the kind of social culture that I'm trying to build around Kinfolk right now is something that I think is so strong from women of color because we're the kind of people that have the most diverse amount of friends. True. And, you know, the, the nice thing about Felipe saying that to you as well is, you know, we're all friends and it's nice when friends Take the time to say the things they think and assume you'd know. Yes. And so that's kind of beautiful. Also, Felipe, Felipe's emo as fuck. So, like, <laughs> so that he just like, is. Kind I mean, of he said sense. this to me like while he was drunk and sweating on the dance floor, his going away party. <laughs> right, but, his Louis Vuitton like sweat thing. <laughs> yeah, with his head. Back. And I was like, I, I was like, wow, that really means a lot because so much of my experience in nightlife has been me consistently having to prove that I've been doing this as long as I have. But it is an organic progression. Like you've been promoting parties, throwing parties, hosting parties for a while now. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. My whole 20s. You're like, yeah. <laughs> You're, yeah. Um, I'm, like, back, I'm like, yeah. <laughs> so let's go talk about tour. Like you were, I mean, I haven't seen you in forever. You've been gone pretty much all summer. And I think for the last calendar year, you've been gone. So what were you doing on tour? What was like your job on tour? Um, it varies, but the tour that gets me on, the job that gets me on every single tour is the same job. And it is VIP and meet and greet manager, I guess. You mm-hmm. can call it whatever you want um, because it's just, and basically what it is, is that I believe everyone knows now most artists do VIP and meet and greet upgrade packages to their tickets on tours. Um, you get like exclusive merch. You, if they do a meet and greet, you get to meet them, whatever it may be. And those are run by an outside company. Okay. That's not done through the, pr- the regular promoter artists, you know, tour. How did booking. you, how did you meet these people and how did you get down with them? Um, Cause to, once you're in, you're kind of in. Yeah. Huh? Once I mean, I'm kind of, um, my boss says I'm his favorite. So it's like the mafia. <laughs> It is like, I don't, I don't know anyone. Like, I don't know any of the other reps for my company. Right. Like I've never met anyone else who does my job for my company. Right, right, <laughs> right, right. You're just like in a road. silo. Yeah, totally. <laughs> so, um, sorry, what was the How question? did you get into it? Oh, how did I get into it? Uh, I had been trying to go, I went freelance four years ago after I left the fader. I 
uh, somehow in that decided that I really, after doing corporate stuff, I decided that I really wanted to work with the artists. Um, but I still wanted to be able to do event production. And, yeah, because that's and what we were really doing good. for the corporate stuff. Yeah, I remember a lot all of that like, stuff. Yeah. So I wanted to remain a producer. I wanted to remain in production and, you know, building stages, bringing that kind of atmosphere to a crowd. But I wanted to work on the artist side. I was really done with corporate money. And why? Um, because what was happening was I was always working with the artists anyway. Mm. Uh, I was having to fight a lot for artists that I loved that deserved the money that they did just because the white people didn't know who they were. Right. And I was selling my soul to evil. I felt like I was using all my cool factor to sell mm. cars yeah. and booze yeah. and booze. And I was like, no, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, this feels gross. <laughs> and it's demeaning to do that. And then you're in these meetings and they're like, we need people of color, 18 to 34. And you're like, hello, I'm a, person of color, age 27. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, no, your idea is a little too radical. What does the 45 year old white person have to say? And I'm like, right. this is a joke. Right. Like I can't even, I'm selling my soul and I can't even actually do the work. Right, right. So uh, I gave up on that. And I just kind of had this moment where I was like, screw this. These people make me feel terrible about myself. Um, I want to go work for artists. At least then I have one crazy person to answer to. Um, and I told a bunch of friends, that I knew that had worked on tour as either stylists or production court, anyone that worked on tour, basically tours like that. It's like, nep it's, it's just like, do you have a cousin? And then yeah. that's how you get it. Yeah. It's all nepotism. And, and my know. girl tried to hook me up with Drake's people at first. And I met his like production manager when he was doing, uh, what was the tour with the two toilet bowl, little looking thingies, whatever. Uh, the one before the, nothing was the same. And I met him and he was like, you know, send me your resume and that didn't pan out. And then like, Six months later, she called me and she was like, yo, are you free this summer? Um, I like am partners with this dude who owns this company and like he needs people to go on tour. And the first tour is New Edition. And I was like, sounds good to me. Got to start somewhere. And that, how long ago was that? That was 2014. So, it's so the, yeah, it's been really consistent since yeah. then. It doesn't feel consistent to my bank account. <laughs> well, yeah, consistent. is it not lucrative? It is extremely lucrative, but it's not taxed. Okay. which is like a freelancer's nightmare. Right. And also, but do you find that you're saving a lot because like you're, you're not spending it. You're just like in this like quarantine with these people for like months on end. Yes. Um, yes. In theory, I am saving a lot. Um, and you are very much in quarantine, but also you make larger purchases. <laughs> oh, right, right, right. Rage so like, purchases. Like, when yeah, you're, home, like, you're like, I need a new couch. What the fuck? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So like, you'll come home and you'll be like, oh yeah, now I can buy like seven Rihanna Fenty Pumas. Um, <laughs> but I've been, I've been pretty good at that. But, uh, for me, it was actually, it, even though it's lucrative, I felt like I was finally living within my means because mm. I was able to pay off my school loans and like all that kind right, of stuff. Because freelance writing definitely. Is yeah. LOL about that. <laughs> so you wrote something earlier this summer that I found fascinating. It was for Vice's music site, Noisy. And it, it was on the heels of that Drake announcement where he was canceling his meet and greets. Mm -hmm. And I think this was around the time Bieber was canceling his meet and greets where yeah. he was like abandoning fans. And it was titled, Artist Meet and Greets Suck for Everyone. I thought it was a really interesting point of view for someone who was inside, but also considering how much like backlash everyone was getting, like, you know, the stars are ungrateful, this, that, and the other, but you shed light on how kind of inhumane it oh, can it be. Like talk about like what the more egregious aspects of like meet and greets and why you get, why someone would be like, nah, fuck this. So for me, um, <laughs> Rocky, I remember this is a really cool story. So Rocky once said to me, 
He said we were in Europe and he had meet and greets and we were going from 200 kids a night to 15 kids a night. And so he said to me, so you can let these kids have a little more time. It's not so many of them. Right. It won't be so crazy. And he goes, you don't have to be as mean as you usually are. (laughs) I started laughing. And that was a joke that we had all tour about how mean I was because he would be sitting there and like I would be like ushering these kids out. But he would never stop me. Right after he said that, he also said, not that anything's wrong with how mean you are. Usually you need to be that mean. But it. so a lot of people always tell me like, oh, Nikki, you're so like cruel to these kids. And I'm not really cruel. Like I don't curse them out or anything, but it's people don't really realize how entitled they feel to the moment. They, someone paid for a moment to meet you and in your mind, like as an adult, you're thinking of it as like you paid for like a, a, a like it's, it's like a meeting, fee, right? Yeah. It's like if you said to someone like, can you slip me like I'll slip you $50. Can you give me 15 minutes of Chris Atlas in like 1998 or whatever? But it's like these kids don't feel that way. The meet and greet is like I paid for you to do what I want. Mm. So. So it's kind of like dance, dance, like exactly. So I've seen kids come in and be like, I want you to sign these random shoes that I bought off of eBay, which is like as small as it gets. I've seen girls like take their clothes off and be like, I want you to take a picture like this or like that. Uh, or I want to kiss you. I want to take a picture where you're kissing me. That's a that's a number one request. Actually, I would like to take a picture where either they're kissing your cheek or you're kissing their cheek, which Sure, that oh. might seem benign, but no, can ba- I ask you a question? The bacterial Would you let, uh, yeah. <laughs> aspects of that are fucking are disgusting. disgusting. Also, my kit involves, yeah, my kit involves so much of that. But it, like, yeah, so like there's the kissing, but it's like, you got to think about it, right? Would you let a stranger in a club take a picture of themselves kissing your cheek? No, that's horrible. And then put it up on their Instagram. You understand what I'm saying? Like, yeah. that's just, that's how it gets. I've that's had. That's too expensive. Just like. I've had. Taking be that like from someone. Weird projects and be like, I need to take a certain kind of picture with this camera or whatever, whatever. Also, people don't realize like people are wasted. Right. Like the state of people sometimes is also, you know, like imagine being an artist and you're trying to talk to someone and this girl is like falling. This is a 15 year old girl who's like clearly on drugs, like yeah. falling all over you. And it's not like. There's nothing we can do about that in that moment. You know what I mean? If it's like egregious, obviously you you call security or whatever. But most <laughs> of like, the time, you don't know how old this person is. And like, you're just trying to like get them out of also, there. Also, like, you don't know what they're actual, what they're going to do. Yes. You have no idea. Like, I've seen all that, sorts of The nonsense. energy must be dark and unpredictable. Yeah. That, and that's how I feel about like it. On a security level. Yeah. Yeah. And me, but you know, like, I know I used to feel bad about it. And then I got with the security guards and I saw how like crazy they are and I was like yeah they understand like people don't see the artist as like I'm meeting someone like or like I have a moment to speak to this person it's more like how many ways can you validate me in these five minutes so like can I get you my snapchat can I get a selfie can I get an autograph can I get you to tell me that my jacket is cool if you think my jacket is cool can you take a picture with my jacket or can you get on my snapchat wearing the jacket telling everyone that you think that my jacket is cool right it's they, it's like they want to snatch some portion of you. They want like yes. a pound of spiritual flesh. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Like what's the most harrowing shit you've seen on tour where you're like, I cannot stand the humanity? Um, the ones that actually really bother me the most are the white kids who come in and ask the black artists to do like gang poses or jail poses. Those really kill me. What do you do? Um, the artists handle it really well. Do they? Uh-huh. Where they're like, they I will say not, no. <laughs> I don't abide by this minstrelsy. Usually, like, you know, like you forget, like 
it, there's a dynamic where a lot, like, especially on a rap tour, uh, oh, I've seen it more egregious things, actually. Um, on a rap tour, you have, like, white kids. So when the artist makes fun of them, it's kind of kind of validating for them right. in the same way. So, you know, some of them would just be like, nah. You know, like, yeah, just yeah, like yeah. that. Uh, and, ha, ha, and, ha, ha, and then, nah, the, no way. And then do something else. And the moment passes. Um, and you can see they're, like, a little disappointed, but it's also, like, I don't give them time to yeah. talk about that. But also, remember, I, 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 as much as I go on tour with young rappers, I also go on tour with old boy bands. Right. So I've seen, like, old women, like, really, really throw themselves. And that's, like, embarrassing and crippling <laughs> for me. Because it's, like... I, there's like a part of me that has this fantasy of my life where I'm like, I'm never getting married. It's fine. Like, right. and maybe when I'm 60, like I'll get to be a cougar or something. And then I see them and In I'm like, action. oh, I think I'd rather have kids. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I saw, I once saw a woman in a wheelchair. This woman was maybe 300 pounds with a broken leg. She had her four-year-old daughter pushing the wheelchair, four years old. And I'm being, I'm guessing this kid was uh, three feet tall. That's where I'd go with it not as tall as the chair, pushing the chair, got there to take the picture, pulls the daughter out, pushes the chair away. The daughter obviously has no idea who the fuck New Edition is. And it's just like, why am I here? Right. And the mother starts screaming her head off. You will not ruin this for me. <gasps> and God. then it's like, she's a big fan. And I'm like, this girl does not know not one word of a New Edition song. Also, I mean, or like, maybe she does because you played it. What time is this girl's bedtime? Like, what is going on? I mean... That's so I've thing. seen stuff like that. And so, you have to think about it. You're just like, how is this moment going to echo through the rest of this child's life? Yeah, I think about that all the time. I think about so many people bring their young kids and they're like, oh, he, he's a big, big fan. And I'm like, your 12-year-old son is not a Bobby Brown fan. <laughs> I can promise you. <laughs> You're like, or when I see with Raptors, it's opposite, right? Like right. the mom would be like, oh, like, it'll be like a mom and two daughters. And they'll be like, we came to see you. And I'm like, holy crap. Right. I'm like three seconds from calling ACS because I think you're pimping your daughters or yourself. <laughs> right. Or pimping your daughters so, and a means to pimp yourself. So people are kind of on their worst behavior when they're around mm -hmm. famous people. Oh, yeah. They don't know how to act. Or so is, is some part of you relieved that you no longer have to revisit this? I miss it a little. Really? What, <laughs> what, what part of it? Like, what, what are the ingredients that you have to have to enjoy a job of this nature? Um, I miss the artists. Okay. I get along with the artists really well. Why? Usually because I'm the person they see at the end of the day and I shepherd them through the most harrowing part of the day. Right. So uh, a lot of them grow to appreciate my ability to like do you take ever, care of the fan and also keep them protected. But do, they, do you ever have like an upstairs, downstairs, Gosford Park, like Downton Abbey moment where they're just like, you work for me or no. anything like that. That's nice. They never even know who I work for. That's nice. Yeah. They're always confused. <laughs> They're Actually, always like, who do you work for? I've definitely been a part of like a celebrity caravan where people mm -hmm. are like, I don't know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, who do you work for? Where do you come from? And so that's the glory of being an outside company. Mm. Sometimes I'm the production coordinator okay. also. And then I'm a little like I'm under someone, but I still get paid by the same person. So I still get to be like, none of you sign my checks. I don't right, care. Right, right. Um, In terms of like, management and things like that like what are are there other soul selling aspects to it like i feel like you and i have talked a little bit about like how certain white bosses can be problematic yeah i think there is um you're the only woman a lot of oh, times do you, i mean really like for real and you're 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 living on a bus so you're changing showering 
you know, and I'm on a crew bus. So like this tour, I got to be on a band bus, which is like you get a hotel every night because you're a musician <laughs> and stuff. But when you're a crew bus, like you're you're the interns, essentially. Like yeah. you, you first of all, you have to be in every city at like 7 a.m. So you don't there's no point in getting you a hotel because you're also breaking down the stage till 1 a.m. Right. And usually it's like an eight hour drive to the next city or something. So you're showering in the arena. So there's a lot of like I have to shower before or after people, a lot of thinking about my actual physical safety and physical like I don't really drink as much on tour until I learn get to know people. And still I limit it a lot because I just you never don't, know. I just don't like being a drunk woman, even though I know all these guys care about me or something like. You know, and, and then also like uh, being black and traveling, <laughs> black woman and traveling all around the country with a bunch of white people, because usually crew is usually white, southern, Cali, yeah, like, you know, like, they're like everywhere, got, though. Yeah. You know, it's like I we like somebody once said, like everyone who works on tour, everyone who works in production is just someone who had ADHD and didn't like sitting at a desk. And it's like, you know, and I was like, yeah, like, that's who we are. So we all are kind of the same kind of delinquents, like even me, you know? <laughs> right. So there's a lot that we have in common, but then it's like, you're like a delinquent from rural Texas. Yeah, it's a lot of like, <laughs> like random blue collar yeah. white people. Oh yeah, like, like... Like Duck Dynasty fans. Yeah, I was definitely, <laughs> I'm definitely on tour with like gun owners and Trump supporters. What do you guys talk about? Guns. And Trump. <laughs> and Trump. Do you Do you find yourself like kind of curtailing your more um incendiary political stances um because no blue lives matter no what <laughs> i actually find what i do i mean i've just been around white people for so long in my mm. life that uh what i find is that i i present my ideas and my beliefs differently oh what does that mean so whereas that like sounds loaded yeah so whereas like Obviously, in New York, I can just say how I feel, mm. use certain words and just be like, I can I can say in New York, like white people are the devil. And that will usually start a conversation. Whereas like when I'm on tour with these people, I I'm not trying to prove anything to them or change their mind because you're not going to. Yeah. And yeah. I'm not interested. In, right. And that's part of self-care is remembering that I'm not here to do that. Um, you don't have to teach all of the white devils. Right. Yeah. But. I still, I never lie. I'm, it's like, at this point in my life, it's like, I'm physically unable to lie about certain <laughs> things when it comes to race. Right. It just feels dangerous to me to even agree with certain things. So I either Right, you're like, we're going to accidentally kill someone together. Yeah, totally. I yeah. either say absolutely nothing, which is, means you're signing my check, or I present it in the sense that, like, I think about where you're from and what kind of, like, rebuttals you're going to give me, and I just lay it out as plain as fact. So, like, with this past crew... There were a lot of gun owner Trump supporter situations. And I knew I was going to get a lot of we're all the same because that's what people who right. are racist all say. All lives matter. Yeah, they just say we're all the same. That's yeah. what racists say because it's the like blanket statement. Yeah, Justin um, Timberlake. I had people who like couldn't even talk to me the first week. Like when I said hello to them, like, oh, I don't know if they knew that their faces were like registering, registering <laughs> yeah. it, but I could see on their faces they were like, what? What is happening? Like, <laughs> like, and I just, I would say stuff like, we're a family on the on the road and I don't look like you. Nobody else in this restaurant looks like me. You know what people that look like me suffer and you are all responsible for me whether or not you choose to believe. And that's pretty much fact. How does that go over? It actually went really well. Yeah. Um, you almost have to take kind of a militaristic yeah, thing to it. I was it. just like, yeah. I just didn't leave any space for it to be argumentative. Like I wasn't really trying to get into the spaces of like, like, I'm and, not going to talk yeah. to these people about, like, how to change the world. They're not interested. But I am going to talk to them about the way the world actually is. 
Does it bother you to be with people like this 24-7 for a span of time? Like when you're done being on tour, do you get home, put walk into the shower with all your clothes on and just like think about like. Yeah. Yeah. But except what I do is I come home and I don't sleep and I go out for like nine days. And like, <laughs> I don't like drink crazy, but like I just like go out every single night and I've like live out of my you. suitcase. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, people, people, people with taste, people with culture, people with music, yeah, music. No, I mean, I have the same thing. Like, I think I, I did a similar thing when I got back here um, last summer after living in LA for a year and a half. And I was just like, oh, people know the lyrics of the song. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. So are you happy? I mean, it's, it's fall and now you have a home base. How do you feel about that? I think it's cool. Um, I actually don't usually end up going out on tour in the fall. So I was kind of freaking out about coming home. Um, I actually was about to go out on another tour this fall. But uh, then the job happened. Then the job happened. Do you think it's going to be a career? We'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely something that I've always wanted to be included in my career. Yeah. I've never. I've always been planning to have a career of multiple jobs yeah me too hi <laughs> have we met so on that note will you be writing more yes oh that's exciting so the kind of thing that happened on tour this time was that i didn't have to be a production coordinator and uh my artist was not doing meet and greets so i was basically a glorified merch girl <laughs> so that's Which a lot great. of time yeah totally um i said glorified because i still had to provide people who paid a lot of money with an experience with not a lot of resources <laughs> where usually i can defer to you're gonna meet the artist in right, 20 minutes right. um and people would be like that's it a t-shirt and a bag that's it and i'd be like this is like 200 dollars worth of merch get out of my face yeah, yeah but yeah. we uh uh, yeah, so I this tour, I told myself that I was going to write more, um, that I needed to make more money, that I was taking my approach to money all wrong. I was kind of doing writing where I was kind of like, oh, I need to pay rent. Let me write a couple of uh, articles to right, do right, that right. instead da, 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 of it being like, yeah. I need to make an income every month. And right. Also, like, LOL on thinking that you're going to make rent with the invoicing <laughs> system that writing involves. Yeah. Net 45 rent. Yeah, um, totally. But I, uh, I said that this time I would start writing more. And just to like keep me distracted, and I have, and uh, now I've gotten into this kind of a groove where I've yeah. kind of been putting out something every week. So, what kind of stuff are you writing more of? I want to do more profiles and more okay. interviews and more stuff where I get to talk to a person and really like write from that space. A lot of my writing has been from my own head, which is dope in many instances, but only leaves space for me to be able to write think pieces and cultural essays and stuff like that. And as much as I love my taste and I love the way that I think, I don't feel like I need to impress that upon people consistently, nor do I feel like it's something I need to work on. Like, I don't need to work on writing to express myself. You want to, like, report and learn how to do that. Right. Especially since I have to change my voice every time I write on somebody else's site. Right. You know, like I have to change my narrative every time I what based on whatever site I'm writing for. So now I want to do more profile. I want to talk to more artists just because I feel like not enough women of color do interviews. I feel like interviews are starting to look real boring. It's kind of like music videos. Mm. Remember when like music videos were so dope and like, sure, there were like four guys that did it really well. Yeah. But like they were very experimental and everyone had a voice. Yeah, exactly. And now I feel like all the features are the same. Yeah, but a lot Folks. of that, go, going back to your meet and greet thing, has a lot to do with access. Like, we do not have the access that we used to have. The thing that I would love to see you do more of 
is people who aren't famous yet, but should be. That's kind of what I feel like I'm starting to get more now. Right. Um, People like when I really like the fact that editors come to me with the idea of we need someone who's going to speak to this person and have a real conversation with them and not just like, uh, you know, a Q&A that like covers all the right, right, press right. release the, points. The one sheet. Yeah. And who are your editors? Like, where are you writing for right now? Um, Complex. I write for a lot, which I think surprises a lot of people, but. Uh, it just goes to show you that if you have a good editor, you stick by them. Yeah. And Ross Serrano is one of my favorite editors yeah. right now. He's phenomenal. Like, he's a phenomenal editor. They, I've stuck by me for three years. Good talent there that stayed yeah. a while. Well, um, good editors do that. Yeah. And always Julianne over at Jezebel, number one. She is the reason I write. Um, uh, there's a guy, Peter Orloff, who I really love, who I used to do uh, Red Bull stuff with. Yeah, I remember. Was, I know Peter. Really yeah. I, I, lo- I really like him he's as well. He's an old school head. So, you know, I've been following your writing career for a while. And, you know, as we mentioned, you've written for The Fader, um, Guardian, Pitchfork. Uh, but actually something that you wrote for Gawker, I remember reading it and I, I think I reached out to you and actively befriended you after the fact. And it was called The Things We Suffer. And it's one of those pieces of writing that actually makes me so sad and makes the fact that Gawker's not no longer going to exist anymore, like really, really palpable because it's like such a good home for writing like this. I mean, also for gossip mongering and like fuckery, but it was a great home for personal essays. And is it true, and maybe this is just a perception for me, but is it true that after that, your writing changed? Yeah. Like, I feel like you ended up putting so much more of yourself into all of your writing. And I know that that's changing again as you, you sort of um, go into profiles, but maybe not because it's still a very much going to be your point of view. But I mean, what made you talk about your fraught relationship with your mother, like on <clears throat> such a public thing? And I, I, I do personal essays as well and I have my own motivations, but I, like why and how did everything change after that? So, what happened was it was right around, it wasn't around, it was the same day after the Ray Rice shit had happened. Yeah. And it was after his wife had said she was going to stay with him. And I think she had done like some sort of interview where she had like, they had like sat together and she had like forgiven him publicly or something. Right. And the entire internet was talking about domestic abuse and domestic violence in that callous and just asinine way that they always do where everyone was just kind of being like well you know like this is why you don't you know this is why you don't really stand up for you know a girl and like blah blah and i remember on tour that um summer stephen a smith had said that thing where he said like you women know like when you're starting a fight like basically being like we're here to save you but stop starting Mm -hmm. it all the time and i had had this screaming match with everyone in in the band like me and seven guys just like going at it because i was like this guy's a victim blamer and they were like how how so so i i had already had that conversation face to face in an aggressive situation and brought all those people to heal like all those people came back to me like hours later and were like you were saying something and we were being defensive and not hearing you and i remember that had moved me because it was the first time in my life that i realized that you can really scream at people and you can really yell and get mad and everyone has the right to do that but if you want to change someone's mind or if you want them to see what you're saying you have to find a way to be able to at least say it to them straight Mm -hmm. so that way if they don't change their mind or if they don't take it that way you know not to waste your time anymore trying to continue right so 
that happened and I saw, so there was a conversation going on a timeline about domestic violence and domestic God, and abuse. that video was just yeah. everywhere. And everyone was on their high horse. Yeah. When I tell you, like, it was, I remember, like, I was reading the internet and I just, I was in bed and I was like, this is so stupid. And none of you understand. You think that abuse is what was very clear to me was everyone thought that abuse was something that was triggered by anger rather than a display of power. Abuse is about power. It has absolutely nothing to do with the person's mood. They could slap you in their happiest moment just because they want you to understand that they are in control and you are not. And the weapon that they choose to use to display that power is violence. Mm. I know that because my domestic violence situation was my mother, not my boyfriend. So you couldn't blame it on me pissing him off. You know what I'm saying? Or you being dumb for being in love with this person. Yeah. yeah. Or me being a glutton for punishment. Mm. You know, so I realized also that people just thought about this one dynamic. People talk about husband and wife, but I'm like, most of people have children. Right. Like. Why, why do you think that domestic violence only happens with two people? Like almost all the time there are children involved um, and that happens. And then that causes other things. And I just, I got to this point where I thought about all my guy friends and there was specifically, I thought about the males because I thought about how much the narrative skewed towards blaming women. And because of that, it made men who suffered the same thing feel weak. And I thought about how many of my guy friends had beef with their mom over abuse, over all sorts of things they had suffered that couldn't speak even when these things happened because they were men and survivors of abuse. So they were pretty much like in a schism where like the rage couldn't even allow them to speak. And within their own group, they weren't being listened to. And I said to myself, you have to tell your story. You are the only person who doesn't give a shit enough to tell the whole truth about who you are and where you come from. Don't don't give a shit enough in the sense that I don't care what people think of me. I've gone through that already, the shame of that. And also I think you accept certain things as a writer where you're just like, yeah, I'm in a dredge. I just thought these, everyone who is me and is watching the timeline, who is suffering the pain that I'm suffering while watching this conversation may not have the strength to say what I have to say, but I can. So Mm. I'm going to do it. Right. And so I did it. And I didn't think of it as like, I'm letting go of my demons. I thought of it as we need. Us kids need someone to talk and I'm always willing to talk. Yeah. So I did that and. I sent it to Jason Parham, who is another one of my favorite editors who now is at the fader. And I remember he sent me back a message at like. I sent it to him like I wrote it in twenty minutes. I got really high. Really, I, yeah, I got super high, uh, which is what I always do when I. Because what happens is I think about something for days, and, and then, then once marinate, I have the very yeah. first line, I'm good. Then you're so, catharsis, yeah. yeah. So I got high. I cried for like fifteen minutes, and then I just was like, "You can't stop crying until you write this. You're only going to keep crying because you won't finish." So I just stopped, wrote it, and then I felt better. I felt like better than I'd felt probably in the twenty eight years I'd been alive, and. I sent it to Jason and I was like, hey, uh, I thought because I also thought about my audience. You know, I I work in marketing. So I was like, (laughs) no, it's true. Like I I didn't like just send it off to anyone. I specifically wrote it for Gawker. I specifically knew who I was going to send it to. Yeah, you were like, I want a floodlight. And I was like, this is, I want want an audience that is diverse, that is large. And I sent it to him. And I remember he sent me back a note five minutes later and he said, this is the most 
heartbreaking, beautiful essay I've ever read in my life. I'm getting art. I'm pushing it through. I'll get back to you. And like, what was the reaction? I remember you were like, it really was one of the most positive. It is still, comments. I still go back to that comment section yeah, I was gonna to feel say. better. <laughs> yeah, no, you were interacting a lot with people. It was the most positive comment section I've ever seen on the internet. Right. Not just mine, like on the internet period. People text me about it, how positive it was. Um, people still come up to me to this day to tell me about the abuse they've suffered and how the thing that everyone says that always uh, touches me is everyone says, you spoke. My situation is not the same as yours, but you spoke for me. Mm. It's something I've ever, never been able to put into words. And I was like, it took me like uh, a quarter of a century to put it into words. But I knew I had to do it for all the kids who couldn't. Right. Is that... But that's the thing. It's like after that, I feel like a lot of your writing, again, became more personal. A lot of your presentation of information, just even on social, became a lot more like undiluted Mm -hmm. and very sort of crystalline. Yeah. I felt free and I saw how important I saw that my voice was I saw that what I knew about my voice was true. And what I'd always known about my voice was that my story was Despite being something so I talk about how much of a black woman I am, how unique that experience is. But I really believe that my experience is universal in the sense that it can touch so many different types of people. Right. And that article kind of proved that. Totally. Absolutely. Um, You also actually, how is your relationship with your mom? Uh, We don't usually talk about personal things like it's cool. It's it's, it's it's kind of crazy. Uh, I blocked her that same day. Like on my phone, my roommate came home and was like, this essay is awesome. And I don't understand why you still talk to your mom. Like this is a decision that you have made, have wanted to make and should stick to. So I blocked her for like a year and a half. And then I had to go do some piece for a fashion site and went to my house and she was there. And like I blocked her and I told my whole family. So um, I feel the other thing that happened was that I just became unfiltered as a human and kind of like felt like screw this. I've always been the odd man out in my family. And I just kind of told them, I was like, look, like, this is what's, I sent, my cousin read the article, sent it to my aunts. Um, Everyone was kind of like, we didn't really know, like, we knew your mom had like a problem, but we didn't really realize that like, this had affected you and had really like been so much bigger than we thought. Um, And I told them like I was like, I'm not talking to my mom, like on some, just like, I need space. I'm not like forbidding her. Like I'm, I won't not show up to a family event because my mother is there. Right. It's not that deep. Also, I come from a culture where it's just not possible. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. We don't come, I don't come from a privileged American thing where I can just be like, I'm never speaking to my family again. Right, right. Uh, I'm an orphan. Like, it's like, I love my family. My family loves my family. I yeah. have to still be participate in being part of my family. So it just so happened for holidays. Uh, I would not show up to the ones that she was just, just scheduling wise. Um, we just ended up not seeing each other for almost a year. I knew that she was still texting me because my iMessage on my computer would let me see sometimes. Right. And my brother was kind of like being the intermediary between us. Um, but I was happy. And then uh, I saw her a couple in February and it, she like me and my mom are really good at being polite. So <laughs> I saw her and she was like, I call you and you never answer me. And I was like, I've been busy. Right, right, right. <laughs> like like, it, hasn't been, like it hasn't been a year and a half, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah. And she was like, yeah, you know, and then we just started talking and then I was like, you don't really bother me that much. But I didn't like take her off the block. I was just like, that was cool to see her. And then my grandfather died in May and everyone was like, you need to call your mom. She wasn't her. He was like my adoptive grandfather, I should say. So it wasn't her 
but father. Still, it was like, but a it was very still important very person, important. Yeah. And everyone was like, "You need to call your mom." And I was like, "This is not the time for me to be like." Actually, <laughs> I can't be the one to call my mom. If somebody else could call my mom, that'd be great. Yeah, you can't actually in those moments. Well, I yeah. mean, in, in certain times when your family is correct, they are just correct. And also, it just made me realize like. I need to be in contact with this person. And also I'm strong enough now that like, I don't need to block you to not talk to you. I can right, just I can like just not, not talk to yeah, you. And which not, is kind of what happens. Well, that's good. It sounds like you're not as triggered badly. Yeah. It's her. pretty cool. It's fine. Um, so just skipping right along. Um, <laughs> you also do speaking engagements and I, I, you were involved in a relatively controversial drunk Ted talk. Um, and I was so pissed cause I was texting you the next day. I was just like, where's the transcript? Is there tape? I need to, I need to get on. I know I, on I'll never do that again. Yeah. Because it was, it was, you talked about whether or not white people deserved Kanye West and people walked out like indignant, um, melanin deficient human beings. Even though some people on the internet said that I embellished that part, even though I didn't even know that because I was so blind drunk, other people told me that people walked out. <laughs> I mean, I saw some people do it, but it wasn't to the. It, I, I saw a couple people, but if you had asked me, I would have said like, "Oh, five people walked out," and people right. were like, "Oh, no, 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 people walked out, girl." Well, plus, yeah, I can very much imagine people being like, "I said good day." <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Just break down what your sort of main thesis was and like what the vibe was like. And you the also wrote, was you that. wrote about it afterwards, too. Mm -hmm. The main thesis was that like um, I wrote about it afterwards and I redid it. It was like the first episode of my podcast, <laughs> which was really funny. But um, I my main thesis really was that white people don't deserve Kanye. It was kind of like the idea behind it was that the entitlement that white people feel to music that is not directly inclusive of them mm. and the entitlement that they feel because they are the major consumer base of such music then goes into their head and makes them crazy and thinks that they own black people and like Kanye West to me has always been the biggest example of that because people feel very safe liking Kanye West oh absolutely yeah. but they also feel rebellious yes they do which is <laughs> weird as hell yeah, yeah, like yeah. how you know and it's something that like I'm used to, I, as a as a as a as a black girl who grew up in white spaces. I know what that feeling is like. It's like I want you to be my black friend, but you're also right, like because you're provocative. You're not a black friend that I can't bring home, you know. Right, and right, it's like, right. and that's oh, right. And Kanye, the more because Kanye, you're so well spoken. And the crazy <laughs> thing that white people won't tell you about Kanye is the more crazy Kanye acts, the more they kind of secretly love him because he continues to be the crazy. Like he continues to like kind of like play up on those stereotypes. Like, right. <laughs> crazy black man. <laughs> and it allows them to keep that rebellious nature of liking him. Right. While also they get to be like, oh, Kanye's a crazy. So I like, that was like basically what I said. I like got up there. I told them what my topic was going to be. Like I created the topic for the panel. Like I was, <laughs> the guy DM'd me, Eric Thurm DM'd me. And I was like, he's like, do you want to do this? And I said, only if I get to say white people don't deserve Kanye. And he was like, whatever you want. Sounds great. And I was like, cool. And it ended up being a panel where we all, <laughs> the only four black people on the panel got stuck under that banner. Um, really? Yeah. Straight up. Four white people went first. Intermission. <laughs> and all those four white people got 45 minutes to themselves. Wow. And then the four black people got a panel where we each got 15 minutes. Shit. 
which we didn't realize so we got there and we right. saw the structure and we were like oh damn <laughs> right right relegated to the back um <laughs> but it worked out great because all these white people set up all this crazy like kanye's crazy kanye's this kanye's that there was a woman who wrote like poetry that she had written while she was pregnant about Kanye and I was like baby that's a lot you called him a dragon you need to sit (laughs) down Um, and then the black people came up by then we were so drunk and so like had enough and I remember in the back I had said to them I said so we're not gonna let these people roll us up we're gonna keep it funny and everyone was like, cool. Because we were all like, nah. I started making everyone drink Hennessy cranberries because I was like, well, you don't know what we're about to go through. But I do. I've had many a uh, all white kid rap discussion. I know how these go, you know. And yeah, I just I just said to them, I was just like, look, like you don't even belong in this shit. Like your opinion don't even fucking matter. It's black music, black history, black stories. Yeah, just because. OK, Tom. And like, you know, and I said that I said that out loud. I was like, to be honest, like none of your opinions matter in rap, like literally none of it, because you don't you can't you are physically unable to share the experience. Well, and also you bring up a really interesting topic, too, in the fact that like the classist issue, like the richer Kanye gets, the people, the more white people feel sort of entitled to it because Because they feel like like they let him be rich yeah totally and now you have a credenza so now you owe us and i'm like (laughs) uh no what (laughs) that's amazing so i hope that you know not to be like this is my podcast is a wishing well but like (laughs) i hope that if you are doing more writing i hope that you do get to do a lot of more profiles and i hope that you get to bring your very singular point of view um singular yet inclusive point of view to people trying to make it in the music industry and i I hope you you talk to a lot of artists but i do hope that you keep this sort of like political and personal angle to your work yeah i think for me doing uh more of the different things makes it so much sweeter when i get to go back to these Mm. essays like this what was happening with me when I started writing, you know, everything changed after Gawker and all of a sudden everyone wanted my voice right. and everyone wanted my personal voice because I'd written something so internal and they were just like, your voice, like you write, like you speak, like it, we love it, like whatever. But what I found was the more I varied in subjects, people didn't exactly love my voice. I was, I'm always going to be this. Like, right. you don't call me unless you want the truth. Like, my friends know that. Like, you don't call me for advice. Unless, I'm not going to hurt your feelings. And sometimes I might not tell you that. I might not give you the advice you want because I know you're not ready for it yet. But, like, I'm never going to lie to you because I just don't have the energy to do that and maintain right. it. So when they would ask me to write about, you know, like, Taylor Swift and Nicki Minaj or, like, Miley Cyrus and that and, like, blah, blah, blah. And I started to get, like, caught up in the hype of writing about that shit. And then I would get back edits that would have, like, all my actual voice taken out of them. Right. Where they're so, like, your hot take is too hot. Let yeah. me redline yeah, Like, that. you know, yeah. I can't really get it. And that happened, actually, with the Kanye thing. You know, Pitchfork asked me to write uh Pitchfork asked me to redo it and they were going to print the transcript of what I had redone. And since I had written it on notebook, I was like, I say this stuff all the time. I can repeat it in a different order. Um, And I did it and the editor wrote the transcript out and I couldn't get it past. This person was a senior editor and couldn't get it past anyone. Are you serious? Yeah. She was like, I'm really sorry. Like. You know, they wanted everything's to be more, like redacted. Yeah, redacted, they were, they were redacted. like, they were like, they really wanted to be like more of a story, like more of an essay. So you have to prove the things that you know, because I was just saying Fuck shit, and that. they're, they're like, like, we they need want you to like five proof. paragraphs, yeah, like your thesis, thesis and, and yeah. like whatever. Uh, and I was like, you want a transcript of a drunk ass rant that I did. 
that's not the same content as I don't want to write an essay <sighs> about Kanye. Fuck I don't I don't take those kind of <laughs> shit. Yeah. I was like, I don't take that kind of shit. Like I don't waste my time. And so it um it was funny because I wrote something for The Guardian too that was about entitlement in Glastonbury and yeah. Solange Knowles read it and Dev Hines read it and that started a whole nother oh, thread yeah, of relationships. Yeah. And I was like, ah, the thing that I wrote like last minute did this whole thing for me and then you guys like made me re-record this shit and nothing happened. But I realized that after all those disappointments, people editing my shit too colorful. Oh, Don't oh really know God. what you mean here. I've had editors like Coded call me like, what does chopped mean? Nobody, I had an editor once tell me that nobody in New York says sister. I was quoting someone in the story that asked also, me like, where what? the sister's at? And he said, nobody in New York says sister. What a bone to pick. Like really, <laughs> that's the line edit. No, I feel like you and I, I, I love that we're having this conversation because like, I think you and I have probably gotten some of the same line yeah. edits like i get a lot i mean of, i always email you and i'm like yeah Mary, like, what, can you just translate this what the fucking shit is this no i've definitely had people be like and to be fair english not just because i'm on your podcast i channel you a lot <laughs> oh, that's in nice. the small time that we've been friends because you you're you're one of the few women that's always been super honest with me about stuff and i always love the way that you talk to me because you you most people like when they're giving you advice to be like well tell me a little bit about and you're like no 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 this should be a rate and then this should be a rate. And then this is what you should tell people. And this is what you should, you should never accept this and never accept this and never get out of bed for anything like this. And you always have stuff like that for me, little gems. And I always think about it because when you're a woman and you ask for anything, whether it be more time, more money to get paid a certain way, anything, any industry, anywhere, you, before you even hear what the other person has to say, give yourself like 7,000 reasons why you shouldn't send that email. Oh, completely. I'm not worth it. I'm too young. They're going to, I'm not going to get the job X, Y, Z. So you do. 75% of the job for them. But if you have women in your life that really make it not as scary or in some, even if they're just giving you like, just like affirmations, like if you can channel them sometimes, it's just enough to press send on the email and it makes all the difference. Well, well, that's nice because it's really important that people fucking get paid because this town is disgusting and I just don't understand the fucking dads who think that they can just make you do stuff because glitter. And then like, add it's like more completely stuff. asinine. And also, the thing that really gets me, and I will say this for everyone ever, like especially in this position where you're asking for money, is that the money they give you is arbitrary. They are not taking out their fucking wallet, counting the bills, and handing it over. They don't, it doesn't make a fucking ounce of difference what they pay you but what they pay you could change your life and right. like that's the thing it's like everyone just rob them all just they're it's oh, not yeah. their money and, it's, and like it's been such a changing year for me and that i like i came back to writing after i left writing because i was like fuck all of you none of you really want to hear my voice you all always want to edit me and like make me sound like like you ask for my black voice, then you want me to do how switch voice. it for yep. you. And I'm like, nah, that's not me. If you really want somebody, if you want the real, then come back. And that's how I started writing for complex because they were the only people with an audience where they were like, <laughs> girl, <laughs> hell yeah. Like, go ahead. Like whatever. And, um, I just, when I, I, I stopped writing, I went on tour with Rocky and I was like, F this, like, I want to be a manager. I want to work with artists. Like I'm going on tour. I'm changing my career and I'll come back to writing when I can do it on my own dime in my own time. And everyone started hitting me and being like, you need to write more, please, please. Like all we ask for 2016 is that you write more, whatever it takes. And I would complain. I would tell them like, this is why I'm not writing. And they'd be like, you know, like help us fix it, help us fix it, mm. push through it. You're the only person that's going to keep talking about it. Like, and 
not to like labor you, even though that is what that is, um, <laughs> like, you know, fight for it. And I, I was like, I need to make some money. I need to. And I, and I got tired of not having my voice heard. And I really did feel like I was, you know, like withering away. And so I did it. But when I came back, I was like, well, there's only two things. Like I'll give up being a snob about what I write about mm. and take it, you know, I'll write some things because you also have to practice to write, right? So Absolutely. like sometimes when you get too snobby about shit, you're too smart, you start too late, you're just like, oh no, I don't. Mm-mm. I know, it's like shitting Not diamonds. Today. Yeah, you're like, <laughs> no, no, no. No thank you this week. And I just kind of like started taking it for fun and being like, you don't have to take everything piece as like a political manifesto. Some yeah. things you can just, you're, you have really good humorous writing, just be humorous and make this couple hundred dollars, you know? Yeah. And... So I, I said I would do that. I would I would give up on the topics and not be a stop about the topics. But I was like, which I will not be doing is giving up the paper. Yeah. Because you guys take up. I know you guys think that writing a story is a one day process, but people are paying you less than your day rate for three days work. Totally. I mean, and I'm so lazy. Like, I really won't get out of bed for less than a certain amount of money. <laughs> like, I'm like, uh, no, my phone is too heavy to lift to re- reply to this. No, but the thing is also, you know, I think that would you say that it's good advice to do what you did, which is to get out of it for a second, reset, recalibrate what you're worth and what you're getting paid and come back and renegotiate. Absolutely. Yeah. Because I feel like your tenor and like you're probably your rate and your like voice and everything has changed from being able to take this little respite. Like, yeah. Well, also because I I didn't come in through this some intern and I never wanted to be a writer. Oh, writing that's was interesting. Tell writing me about was, that. Writing is my side hustle. Like I started writing because production wasn't popping and I wasn't getting any money. I make my day rate is double what I get paid for writing for the day. Like for right. me to open my fucking eyes and like answer some emails. <laughs> and so it was never like just on some straight like, you know, in New York, like just on some budget shit. I was like, oh, I'm not trying to write like. Those yeah, people don't but, pay you for 90 days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's like beer money coming down the line. And so it's like next year's rent. Yeah, it's like, I'm like, this is my this? Uber uh, budget for the weekend. Yeah. Like, and so I, I never thought about it. All my friends are writers. I knew that I could write. I, I wrote in high school and in, in elementary school. I had teachers that like really like nurtured me behind it. And like, I knew it was a skill that I had, but it was never, I never wanted to be a writer because writers were broke. I feel like writers are going to want to like drop kick you. Yeah, (laughs) no, I was like, I'm going to write a book someday, but writers are broke. So I, and I, I mean, I try to be a stylist, so. (laughs) Stylists are fucking broke (laughs) and their arms hurt. (laughs) (laughs) So don't like, don't think I'm being judgmental. I just knew dead end careers. (laughs) I was like, this isn't going to work for me. I need to make money. I need to pay back this crazy expensive school I went to. I really love production. I really love social, the social aspect. Writing is such a solo thing. It's uh, in your head. Yeah. You know, yeah, sure. When you're when people talk about your writing, it's social, but it's like self-indulgent, to be honest. And I had a lot of time at home and I I wanted to write. And I was like, Is writing easy for you? Yeah. Oh, fuck you. But not but not always. No. Okay. The crazy thing is it used to be easy for me because I didn't realize I was doing it when I wanted to. Now that I'm like now that I'm actually trying to maintain (laughs) it as a skill set. Like I tried to do this thing where you like wake up every morning and write immediately. Yeah, just two thousand words. And I'm like, soon as I smoke weed, take a shower, make breakfast, make coffee, (laughs) drop off my laundry. And then I'll write. Right, right, right. <laughs> I, I definitely think I've seen your like Snapchat ablutions and like routines before you write. Um, yeah, so yeah, so 
it's it, it it's a um i think that like it w- it is good to get out of it and it is uh if you were lucky if you are as lucky as i am to have started not as an intern not you know paying your dues and crawling up the side if you're really lucky to be one of those people that's coming in where your perspective is already what you're getting paid for or basically if you have a voice out if the you gate, already have a yeah. voice it's always good to step, I mean, I stop smoking weed every five months for two weeks. Every, everything that you love, you should try to stop for a second and yeah. just take yourself out of it and see what the joy is in it. And that's what I think I got out of those, well, I don't know, what, like four months that I didn't write, you know? Yeah. So in terms of like, you know, what did you go to school for? <laughs> I went to... <laughs> <laughs> I went to school I started, for fashion, so nothing matters. I started school as a psychology major. Okay. I wanted to be a psychologist because I didn't want to be a doctor because my father wanted me to be a doctor. And I was, just, I helped my father study for his med exam. So my dad knew that I actually was really good at medicine. Um, I decided that eight years of school is crap. Psychology, I realized that I couldn't make any money unless I went to med school. So I was like, that's crap too. You're like, fuck, fuck I this. Was like, yeah. You had to be a psychiatrist to get paid. So I was like, screw that. So then I switched to. What school did you go to? St. John's. With Damien, right? And Damien, Felipe. We Felipe? All go- oh, yeah, yeah. Felipe went St. John's too. That's how I know. Me Felipe and Damien actually met Scott. in class. Me and Damien Scott met in the sociology class where we, me, him, and Ebe, Ibrahim, who is uh, J. Cole's like manager, longtime friend. J. Cole also went to our school. Yeah. Um, we basically read our entire class for filth over the Sudan conflict. <laughs> like our white teacher started some sort of conversation and the white kids started talking. This and I just sounds remember like all of you. Oh yeah. And I just remember we were the three that read the New York times in class. Like we were like the, the three that like just straight up, like didn't like pay attention in class. This teacher also had a way, a, a warbly voice and needed a mic oh my to speak. So she God. was like, oh, like really freaky. And I just remember, I don't remember what they said or what opinion they expressed. And it was like, it was like a ping pong. It was like a, a relay race between me, Damien and like. Were you friends? No, we'd never, we'd never spoken to each other, but we were just like, well, y'all are too that, dumb. Were yeah, you we friends? were like, we were, yeah. From there, we knew each other. Right. And years later when Damien met, we were like, that class. And I was like, that's why I've always fucked with you, <laughs> to be honest. I love Damien. Yeah. I love that I've worked with all of you in some capacity. Um, <laughs> but I just changed, I changed it. Sorry. I went to business school and I changed it to marketing international business and then i took like so many classes that i think when i was done i had like a finance minor minor <laughs> international business minor international marketing minor i was just like i was in there for like five years just like so you were always gonna have a bunch whatever. of careers anyway yeah because i because i halfway through college i was like i want to be a stylist and work in fashion what am i doing here and i tried to convince my parents to let me take a year off and move to paris and just kind of like i knew that if i could get to paris i would find work yeah i know i was already interning in new york i spoke the language i had already Who were you had, interning with um i did a bunch of stuff i did i interned with some showrooms some pr firms like so you covered all the bases from all the, the ba- I production mean, standpoint too yeah yeah I, and then i remember when i realized that i really loved fashion but it wasn't for me it was my last job i uh interned for the showroom called Denise Williamson showroom in Soho and I did nine shows and it nine fashion week shows like I, I worked production in the back and I did the after party the door at the after parties oh, and it was like so Robert Geller you. and Yadal <laughs> Azuel and yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you know and like I started seeing like European brands like on Valerie Ash and like on Demus and I was like oh my god like I've never seen this before because I I subscribed to Vogue 
because that I was a kid from the hood. So I was like, Vogue is right. like yeah. has all the stuff. Domestic like, Vogue. Yeah. yeah. And then I was like, oh, crap, I need to be reading like not American Vogue. Yeah, and that's like, when I got like my W subscription because <laughs> I was like, you're like, where is Antwerp <laughs> even? Yeah. yeah. And that's when I discovered all that stuff. So I just remember like everything I did after that came from starting in that place. And like, I just, I was in school and cutting class. Like I remember one time I walked out of my first day at, in microeconomics, even though I was taking it for the second time because I'd failed it. I walked out of microeconomics because I was like, sorry, I have a fashion show that starts in like three hours and I got to run to Bryant Park. <laughs> Do you think that, so you grew up in New York. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that is a huge like positive thing? Absolutely. Because like that's I've never thing. found it's it to be a negative. Yeah, the fact that you can be like, mm, I'm sorry, I can't be in this class. You know, like that's... And, and he thought I was crazy. This white man was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> this delusional child. Um, what did you, I guess like, what was your very first job out of college? Um, the fader. What did you do at the fader? I was Andy Cohn's assistant. And what was that like? What did you specifically learn? And because a lot of people, if they're like the executive assistant for like someone on the publishing side, it is a huge leap to be like, I'm going to write now. Or well, like, that's like the Rubicon. The gag, the gag is in <laughs> the media industry, you get paid nothing to do <laughs> All a thousand of the things. things. <laughs> and my problem, as I'm sure many people suffer, is I'm too smart for my own good. So what always happens to me with jobs, which is another thing I've learned, is uh, don't let people know how much you can do. Uh, when you're it, young, it it's like, you sometimes, yeah, though. I mean, I'm older now, so I know how to work that. Yeah. And I, I make it a much cleaner strategy than just that. But as a kid, I was so busy. 23 years old. I graduated class in 2009. They told me I was never going to get a job. Mm -hmm. um, I got this job for a paltry salary that I couldn't negotiate. And uh, I came in as his ad assistant. I was, you know, I was his personal assistant in that sense. I was assistant to the entire sales team because he's the publisher. So right. I had to help them with all their crap. Uh, in some ways, doing stuff for editorial because their stuff went through him. And then he made me write. That's <laughs> the only really? way that I can really say that. That's yeah, I didn't really have a choice. Incredible, though. I didn't really have a choice. Um, God bless Andy Cohen. Julianne, Julianne wanted me to write, uh, but she just like kind of threw me posts, you know, mm -hmm. throughout the day. And, and I was Julianne down. at the time was the executive editor. Mm -hmm. And you Pete know, was her down. Her name comes up so frequently. I mean, Julianne is the angel of the writing industry. This she generation. really is. I feel like for women, for sure. she is the person that. She's changed so many lives. Yeah. She's like, she brought in every, I keep calling her patient zero, but that makes her sound like typhoid <laughs> Mary. No, she is like the portal through which. Like, because she's someone who actually supports people. Yeah, when people like, actually support people, you get known for that. Everyone is her son. Mm -hmm. No, truly. That's truly. how people all the time. I mean, like I, she let me write about Rihanna as a Caribbean girl in 2009, 2000, excuse me, 2010. Yeah. You know, when it was like, Nobody took Rihanna seriously. At all. I remember this. Like, yeah. At all. And I was like, girl, we can do this. Yeah. You are fine as hell. You're going to get bangs. I remember it's be amazing. Uh, she <laughs> let me write. My favorite thing I'll never forget. She let me write a post when Rihanna came out with the um, S&M video where she's wearing like all that Prada and yes. Fendi. Like that was the first time we saw Rihanna with like actual runway yeah. looks where yeah. we were like, oh, snap. And like the darker shit. None of that fucking like, yeah, yeah resort. And I, shit. 
I remember I wrote a post that was like five sentences, all in caps, and I was like, slay. it was like it was basically like yas before people wrote yas, <laughs> and I was like slay ho slay, like I was going crazy, and I was like, we see you in that SS, you know. SS12 Fendi, we see you two years ahead straight out of the runway. Like, this is you. Do this forever. Yeah. And that was right when Rihanna kind of became a thing. And I just remember, like, she let me write that. And she was like, that's you. I want you to write the same way you come into my office and tell me. Because I used to, like, I wanted to work at The Fader because I knew every writer's personality. I I loved Felipe's stuff. He was the guy that was putting me onto all the Southern rap that I was too New York to ever listen to myself. Felipe is the first person that ever played me future um or two chains like and julianne was like this woman this powerful woman of color like just killing it knowledge goes beyond oh my god and she got me into dubstep she took me to my first annie mac show like she like all that uk all that stuff that Mm -hmm. like didn't make it to a black kid in brooklyn i got all that from her and then pete was like the deadpan weirdo guy that i was like this guy, the jokes, <laughs> right, like, right, right. whoa. And then Sam was like the weird white kid that I was like, I went to school with you, but like, you Inversion sometimes give me good indie rock. <laughs> like, you know, and it was, I had, everyone had a personality to me in that space. And I was so happy to be able to, that she thought that I had a voice that could fit something yeah. that I thought was so above. She par. saw you. Right. Yeah. And then once Andy saw that I could write, he was like, oh, let Nikki do it. Like, st- like people would fall out of interviews and he'd be like, oh, Nikki will do it. And I'd be like, I'm in the middle of making you a hundred page deck. What are you talking about? <laughs> and then they gave me a column because they had opened, they had started an R&B site, Sweet 903. I remember They hired that. Treats. Yeah. Treats was like, I need Nikki. So then my job became executive assistant and editor of staff writer for I Sweet 903. Like really smart women have those years. Yeah. Like Where I you're do- doing like 10,000 yeah. things and you're like. But I need to, but you're not there. You're not at the point where you could be like, where my raise at though? That and like, I'm not flipping tables and I want to kill you all with fire, but I'm not there yet. But you get to a point where you do do that. And that's yeah. fun. I had a column on the fader. The, yeah, you, the site, the fight, the site got smooshed. And then Andy, another random email in my 3 PM. Oh, Nikki will do a column. And I was doing R and B columns every Friday. And I was writing about Diddy and, all this stuff. That's and like, such a blessing. That's when I learned about editors. Yeah. When, when like Julianne was no longer my editor and other people were editing me and I was like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah, it's kind of like when you go to like get your hair done and you can't take the person's hair seriously. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like when editors, when I'm like, I have never in my life seen your byline. <laughs> like I kind of can't take, who the fuck are you to tell me shit? Yeah. I was, back then I was getting edited by uh, a, uh, uh, array of people including a then associate editor naomi zeichner oh <laughs> yeah or what? maybe she was higher than that, that but yeah like i was like not to, i'm not calling her out like she was the one that made me quit or something no but i'm saying like i was it was an array of folks and yeah. i was just like i don't want to do this no more i don't a get paid carousel. to do this yeah and again i got really upset about like I felt like my voice wasn't really going through or like, I, cause I was writing my R and B. So I was like, if y'all make me sound like a fake on the internet, yeah. like black people going to call me. Right, 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 right. Like multi-generational black people were going to yeah, call me. Yeah, I was me. like, I have yeah. to answer for this. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I love Naomi and she's, oh, she's one of my favorite editors actually. But so, you know, I was, my, my next sort of slate of questions was actually going to be like, who do you credit with giving you your, your first shot? And it sounds like a, a collab of Andy and Julianne. I don't really give Andy credit. 
no offense, Andy, because he was just doing it on some like cost cutting bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like eventually when I quit writing uh, the column, I just like sent him. I took a mental health day and like sent him an email that was like, you can't. Just... I will no longer do this because you guys don't want to talk to me about it. I'm like, a track is getting paid for his column. I don't understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're like, if LN is getting paid. And he don't even got to write one every week. Like he just got to write one every time he like land in Ibiza and shit. And I'm like, this is don't make no sense. <laughs> That's amazing. So. Do you have mentors now? Yeah, I think I do. Um, I have them in all different areas. Fields, yeah, because you kind of because of traverse. That. Yeah. Um, I think in writing, I'm trying to think of like who I would see as a mentor who wouldn't be offended and see me and be like, you're my, come on. Like, um, <laughs> but I will say, I, I won't say mentor. I, I will say the people that keep me pushing um, and keep me writing are definitely like Julianne always forever. Um, John Caramonica actually Dude. like pushes me a lot, which I never give white man credit for anything, but there you go, John. Like <laughs> he like, he like was of one of Black the people planet. that like really was like, keep like, I Dude. felt like he was like my mom. Like he was like, keep writing. Have you written? Keep writing. Have you written? Keep writing. <laughs> Dude, his latest on like how white rappers don't need black cosigns anymore. I like I lit I could I could listen I could take an entire college course on that <laughs> you know what I mean because it's like it's amazing because I never noticed it and it's so fucking it's, I mean, true it's, it's true and it's I've never wanted and it's to awful. yeah and I've never <laughs> wanted to read that many words on like G Easy but I was like well I actually like to, to, as someone who's been on tour the black cosigns are at this point if not completely neutral or irrelevant like detrimental. Shut up. Really? I think so. Because I think if you're trying to... Who is the black rapper that would co-sign Macklemore that would make Macklemore better to you? Right. And not make themselves look like a fool. That's true. And do you think Macklemore would actually benefit from someone black being like he's cool? I don't think so. I don't think his audience wants nor cares for him to have a co-sign of that. I better. just can't believe that I've done enough podcast episodes that we're now discussing Macklemore. <laughs> <laughs> You know, actually, I was thinking about the, the other day because you know how like Ryan Lewis is kind of hot. Yeah, I feel like that guy is probably the most abusive person in bed, and it's all Macklemore's fault. And he's probably <laughs> so angry. <laughs> he's just, tired of not having. Just, like, but also, look at Jeezy. Like Jeezy's a hot Fonzie white boy rapper. Yeah, totally. Who the who's the black person that's gonna like make that image hard? You know what I mean? Like. It's an image that exists almost outside of, the, like he said, outside of the need for the cosign. Yeah. And it's funny, though, too, because I think when I went to the Bieber show and I saw Post Malone open for him and I looked at all of these like little babies, you know, in very small clothes and they all looked like Ari Gold's daughter, you know, yep. and they were all f standing for white. Iverson. And they love it. And they love to me. What I'm saying when I say that is that they is detrimental to them it's that the white kids love that you're just white yeah they love they, you, you really and it's the m, &M effect yeah. you know it's like all the white rappers previously came from black like i'm a white boy in a black neighborhood it's right. not you know like even beastie boys they're like we grew up in new york cultural diversity like yeah. that's why we can talk like this and like that whatever but now you have people that are like no i'm from nashville tennessee and i love rapping and right. like crispy crunchy white kids are like yeah i, like I don't need a black friend <laughs> <laughs> you are black adjacent. Yeah, like, I don't need a black friend for this. God, that's so, crazy. Yeah, here you are. Um, have you listened to Blonde? 
I have. So we tried to listen to it last, yesterday. I was making hash browns for my friends, which is a thing. That I sounds do like a Sundays. euphemism. <laughs> no, I do that all the time. That sounds amazing. I invite my friends over and then I cook for them so I can finally clean my house. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And they, uh, we tried to listen to it, and at first we were like, "Ooh, like we are not the two people that should be in a room together listening to this because it's so like, it feels like you should be laying in bed, yeah, naked." Yep. Because with nothing to do. And because right now the atmosphere feels like your body temperature. Yes. And so you need no clothes. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the thing is, I was, you know, listening to it and walking around. And the funny thing about this album, too, is that I am so interested in not reading a single review about it. Same. I don't want to no, hear about no it at all. Interest. At all. And I'm constantly a little bit on the brink of tears while listening to it. Yeah, I think so, too. I think I haven't even allowed myself to get into the actual like words and processing. Mood of it. Like yeah. I, I hear what he's saying, obviously, but I haven't even allowed myself to process it because I'm like, I need to be like, the weather just got right for it. Mm-hmm. Like my friend Durga said, no, I, I saw said, that yeah, too. Yeah, like yeah. right where the, the nights the are night- colder than the days. Yeah. Oh, it's so good, it's and so it's perfect. Like, and I said that about like so many albums that came out this year. How people were putting out the albums in the wrong weather. Yes, like I, it's Drake is the biggest like one for that one. Like, bro, well, that's a winter album. You're also- wearing a shirt. <laughs> But also, I feel like that's why there hasn't been a clear contender for Song of the Summer. Oh, yeah. To me, this summer has been like bangers that should be better. But also like (laughs) or like songs that we're just holding on to from the spring. Also, Shrem Life came out too late. I feel like if Shrem Life 2 came out in June. Yeah, it would have been a a different different tale. But also, (laughs) even their stuff, I think, is going to sound so good in the fall. Yeah, it's true. But it's like sort of window open weather. But Blonde... Like, yeah, just like grateful. Just great. I'm, you know what? Here's the thing. I never, I was never part of that whole, like Frank is coming. I knew one of his producers was seeing someone very close to me last summer. So right. I was like privy to the timeline of the way things were happening in a way that I wasn't with. He was, I mean, obviously he couldn't talk about, talk about it, but he was flying in and out of the city based on the timeline of this album. And actually it's funny because I have, collated my rumors with other people in the industry and we all knew right and because i knew about the the magazine before right anyway and so we all know about the time we know where most of it happened yeah and and so i'm like you know this man is like flying all the time being like oh this week frank wants me in xyz and you're like not telling us anything about it or what it sounds like but like also like taking calls like in front of us and like talking to people and we're like but i feel okay. like we were all in cahoots together yeah, to so protect like everyone the, in the industry is like the landing yeah, yeah so everyone was just like you know you knew it was important you knew you didn't mention it to, like i literally didn't tell anyone yeah um i didn't even subtweet which you know i'm keeping a secret um and <laughs> it's because we're all grateful and yeah. I, I think that that is so like, then when people went crazy i was like why yeah it's fine but the artistry is so i'm just i'm just happy that he exists and he's like producing output I went to Output. <laughs> yeah, like a, yeah, like a away. I went to Output uh, right before I left for tour. Virgil was playing and he showed up. Oh, shit. And he like at first was standing close to me and then went on the side of the DJ booth. And I remember where I was standing. I could see him the whole night and he looked so chill. And I remember thinking to myself, I really hope you're not dropping that album anytime soon. 
and you're going to enjoy because he just looks yeah. so good. I was like, you look good. Like you're glowing and shit and we're in the dark, you know? Right, right. And I was just like, you're, you like, you're so- getting, I was like, I can't imagine that after this album comes out, you're going to be able to come to output and spend the whole Friday drinking beer on the side of the photo booth by yourself. No security. That's amazing. So I hope for so I'm very happy you did in August because I'm like I'm glad you enjoyed your summer yeah totally <laughs> also that's a fall album so bless yeah um, so on on the final thing that I've been asking everybody speaking of like getting rest and all this stuff so what do you do for self-care um and what are you better about now that you were shit at like two years ago or whatever I'm much better at realizing that being on tour requires rest mm. Uh, for some reason, I just think that I sleep in a coffin on a moving bus for nine weeks. It's and the same, same. Nine weeks or four months and I can come home and just go back to work. Um, that's I a really good thing I do is I appoint someone to make sure I don't leave the house. Usually there's someone that's not in New York, like a friend from another state that'll be like, to every day will text me and be like, what are you doing? Lay you stayed down. in two nights ago. You were asleep by 1030. Oh, yeah. I know. And I'm yesterday, so proud yesterday of you. I made a lasagna and I fell asleep for the second one. That's incredible. Shout out to my friends for putting that away in the fridge for me. <laughs> <laughs> I woke up at 2 a.m. and my friend was like, you are knocked out, boo. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I, um, I'm really bad at remembering that I'm old and I have to stop. But also a huge part of self-care is assimilating back into my family Mm. my social friends are my family like not in that weird ass like I don't have no real friends ass way in that I only surround myself with people I really really hold in my heart so coming home is a lot of trying to go out and get back in the city feel the vibe feel what's going on it's really important for me to know what's happening and I always order fresh direct (laughs) no it's really important that (gasps) you order fresh direct because You will find yourself 300 seamless dollars in the hole because you don't have the strength. You want to cook, but you don't want to go to the grocery store. So I always do Fresh Direct, um, a lot of drinking water and a lot of I started a whole new skincare regimen this time because my skin on tour was not popping Um, and uh, TV binging. Yeah. So So just like for the soul and also forces you to stay home. Yeah. You get like caught up and then, you know, you're like an hour, you know, three of BoJack Horseman. And you're like, no, actually, I'm not going outside today. Because this season is I mean, so important. You know, you understand it's like my favorite. It's my thing. favorite also. And I think about it all the time. It keeps me company when I'm on like public too. transportation. I quote it. <laughs> Last night, I quoted it to someone. Or you don't <laughs> quote it because sometimes they have a whole episode with no dialogue. That's so good. That's so good. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking. And I, I love the talk we had. And good luck with your new job. Thank you. And I'm excited. Yeah. Thanks hey. for having me. I, I've secretly been wanting to be on this podcast for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> so perfect it worked out yay have a good day bye I'm in love with my life.